turn with me to the first two verses of the first chapter of the Bible. We're in Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to read and look at the first two verses this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Well, this is the first of many Sundays in the book of Genesis. Genesis, of course, is a book that means origins or beginnings, and Genesis is a, a translation of the Hebrew title of the book, which means the same, beginnings or origins. And of course, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and as its name suggests, it's a book of beginnings that tells us about the, the beginnings of creation, uh, the beginnings of sin and the fall of man, the beginnings of God's covenants and promises of redemption, and about the earliest formations of the people of God and the earth living according to those promises and covenants. And so with that, it's going to be a book that's, I, I, I truly believe, of great benefit for us to consider as we consider such matters, because as we do so, it's going to build our confidence, Lord willing, in God's sovereignty and His trustworthiness and in the certainty of His divine purposes in His world. Before we begin, let's take a moment here and pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Holy Spirit, just as you hovered over the chaotic abyss in the beginning, hover now over our hearts, bringing forth life and fullness and fruitfulness through the preaching of your word. We ask that you would give us eyes this morning that behold something of the glory of our God. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it was uh, Christmas Eve, 1968, that the Apollo 8 spacecraft orbited the moon. Before taking off, two months before, it had been decided that the astronauts aboard would take a TV camera in order to do a, a live public broadcast as they orbited the moon. And so on that Christmas Eve, on televisions across the world, those tuning in watched as this spacecraft orbited the moon. And for the first time, humanity laid eyes on, as it were, the, the Earth's rising. There it is. On the Earth's rising from the vantage point of the moon. It was later recorded by um, PBS that the crew aboard the spacecraft were all instructed that during the broadcast, they should, quote, say something appropriate, unquote. Well, when watchers and listeners began to hear the voice of William Anders come over the fuzzy transmission, they heard these words. For all the people on earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I don't know anything about William Anders, really, but I'd like to think that that was a that was more than a mere quotation and a statement of bare fact for him, but that, that, that was an expression of adoring worship to our Creator God for all of His bigness and beauty and bountifulness displayed in the created order. And friends, I, I want to say this this morning. My goal this morning is that we would be drawn into a similar state of awe and worship at the bigness 
and beauty and bountifulness of our Creator. And to be sure, that's, that's always my goal for preaching here on Sunday mornings at our weekly gathering. My goal is that you, that we would worship our triune God on the spot during the sermon, and then that we would walk away more deeply in awe of Him. And yet I want to be sure to state this from the beginning here, from the outset of our time of Genesis this morning, because listen, I understand that there are a lot of questions modern people bring to this book as a whole and to its first few chapters in particular. Due to, to developments in modern scientific thought and philosophy, we, we, we often come to this book, to these texts, with a whole host of questions and concerns regarding their meaning and timing and all the rest of it. Questions that this text wasn't necessarily written to answer originally. And we sometimes come asking questions regarding when and how, because those seem to be questions that captivate many minds in our particular cultural moment. And it's not to say that those questions are necessarily uh, irrelevant or entirely unimportant. And yet that is not the primary question these texts were written to answer. Rather, they're primarily concerned with answering questions concerning the who and the why of creation. And they do that to the end that we might fall down before the feet of our majestic and matchless God in worship and adoration of his abundant goodness and glory. And so as we explore these texts over the next several weeks, that goal is going to shape and inform and guide and govern the goal of my preaching. And I'd invite you to let it shape and guide and govern the expectations of your heart and mind. And so with that, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word in the first verses of the first chapter of Genesis. Let's listen with reverence and with rejoicing to the words of our God coming to us through the pen of His servant Moses. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, this is our introductory sermon into Genesis. And so we're starting at the beginning of Genesis with the first couple of verses of this chapter. And in addition, we're going to be spending the next few Sundays in chapter 1 of Genesis as well. And this is, a, this is a beautifully and brilliantly written piece of literature. And, and some would be quick to remind us that this text is indeed history, but it's also a highly stylized history, wherein Moses uses elements of rhythm and repetition to communicate truths in a beautiful and compelling manner. And perhaps we could say in, in a liturgical manner. And uh, many of these Rhythms and repetitions seem to, to revolve around the number seven. It's very interesting. There are, of course, seven days here in the creation week, but even more, the first verse has seven words in Hebrew. You might not see that in an English translation. The second verse has uh, 14 Hebrew words, which is, of course, seven times two. And then many of the words in these first two verses are repeated in multiples of seven throughout the entire uh, text here. Um, Genesis 2, 1 through 3 also contains 35 words, which is, of course, 7 times 5. Uh, the Hebrew word for earth is repeated 21 times, 7 times 3. The Hebrew word for heaven 
is repeated 21 times. Uh, the three phrases, and God made it was so, and God saw that it was good, each of them are repeated seven times also. And of course, the word Elohim, just translated here as God, the most central subject in the entire chapter is repeated a whopping 35 times. And in all of this repetition, all of this, these multiples of seven being written in such a beautiful rhythmic fashion, this seems far too intentional on the part of Moses for us to overlook. Because part of what is being communicated here is a sense of, of fullness, of completion, of bounty. You see, in the, in the Bible, seven is often a number that represents completion or abundance or fullness. It's a symbol of bountifulness. Now, the Hebrew word translated as seven is actually made up of all the same consonants for the Hebrew word for fullness or completion or abundance. And so with that, this is a theme drenching our chapter and drenching our verses in particular this morning in which we find the glory of God overflowing into bountiful beginnings. And that's the, the big idea that we're going to be seeing communicated here, that, that God's abundant goodness and glory is here overflowing into his creative work. And so from these verses this morning, we're going to unpack these verses by looking at the God of glory in verse 1, the creation of the cosmos in verse 1, and then the emptiness of the earth in verse 2. But before we do that, I want to actually take a step back and consider the gist of Genesis, wherein we're going to consider something of the book as a whole. And so first, let's look together really briefly at the gist of Genesis, as if we could look at the gist of it briefly. But Genesis is a, is a book that has two major parts to it, okay? The first being Genesis 1 through 11, which we might call primeval or ancient history. And, and part one covers a very long period of time and considers God's relationship to humanity just in general. Uh, but then the second part of Genesis is chapters 12 through 50. And so we might call that part patriarchal history, which is really the bulk of the book. But Genesis 12 through 50 also looks at a, a much shorter period of time and narrows in on a particular family through whom God plans to bless all of the peoples of the earth. And that's the family of the patriarch Abraham and then his sons. And with this family being something of a, a, a central part of the story of this book, perhaps we shouldn't see as a surprise then that there are many genealogies kind of spread throughout the book of Genesis. And, you know, as modern uh, Americans, we might be tempted to just kind of skip over genealogies and view them as inconsequential or maybe even boring. But the fact is, is that these genealogies are crucial for helping us see the outline and structure and meaning of this book. There are 10 genealogies in the book of Genesis, which are uh, divided, into, uh, um, divided into 10 sections, as it were. And uh, there's five in the first part of Genesis, and then also five in the second part of Genesis. There's five in Genesis 1 through 11, and five in Genesis 12 through 50. And they each begin with the same Hebrew word, toledot, or as it's translated in the ESV, generations. So every time we see this, it'll say, these are the generations of so-and-so. And, and every time we come across those words, we come to an important part of the book. Oftentimes, we come to a transitional point in the book, and we enter into something of a new part of the narrative. And so that will be important for us as we consider the author's purpose in, in writing this book. Now, every indication tells us that the author of this book uh, was Moses, because, of course, Genesis 
is not a standalone book. Uh, It comes along with four other books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and these books are often attributed to Moses throughout the whole of the Bible. Uh, But these five books together make up what we might consider to be a a single uh, book or a single volume that we might call the Torah or the Pentateuch. And uh, we therefore attribute Genesis to Moses because he obviously authored the rest of these books, as we see in Numbers 33.2 or Deuteronomy 31.24. And yet we should also say that Moses is obviously not the sole author of the Pentateuch. I mean, it was obviously picked up by later contributors who who edited edited these books, uh, and they added important contributions. They might have modernized the Hebrew for later audiences, uh, they recorded, you know, Moses' death at the end of Deuteronomy. Obviously, Moses was not around to record that, so he couldn't have written that. But with that, it also follows that Genesis was originally written for a Hebrew audience, the covenant people of God in Israel, and presumably those Hebrews who wandered for 40 years in the desert after Exodus and before the entrance to the Promised Land. Uh, Genesis serves as a kind of prequel to the whole narrative that we see in the Exodus and and on into Deuteronomy as as the people of God uh, were redeemed from slavery in Egypt and then uh, spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness before entering the promised land. And you know, prequels are are often um, very useful for us whenever uh, we get caught up in stories, movies, books. And we might think of the Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, Many people today who encounter the Lord of the Rings, they first encounter the trilogy right? And perhaps through the movies, although the books are definitely better. And uh, there's a lot of questions that arise when you encounter the trilogy. Why does Frodo have this magical ring? How did he get this thing? Where Where did this ring come from? How does Gandalf, this powerful wizard, how does he get mixed up with all of these crazy little hobbits in the Shire in the first place? This all seems kind of odd, right? Well, those sorts of questions are answered if you read or watch The Hobbit. And I know for you Tolkien scholars out there today that The Hobbit was not written as a prequel. It was written before, but most people experience it as a prequel. Um, And uh, you you can answer those sorts of questions if you read The Hobbit, which I recommend doing. Uh, But just so, Genesis, it was a kind of prequel. You know, it, it, it addresses very practical questions that Hebrews would have been asking during that time. Now, as a, as a people group, undoubtedly, they were asking many questions concerning why is this God rescued us from Egypt, right? Who is this God in the first place? Is he some, you know, tribal or national deity like Marduk or Baal or, or something along those lines? Can we really trust him? Is, is he a trustworthy God? How did we end up in Egypt in the first place? Well, Genesis answers these kinds of questions, right? So Israel ended up in Egypt because of one of Israel's forefathers, Jacob, had 12 sons, and, and they all kidnapped one of their brothers and sold him into slavery, which is how he ended up in Egypt. But then a great famine came upon the land, and they all went to him, to Egypt, for help. But what's more is that God has rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt because of his promises to Abraham, Right? Before the the people of Israel ever arrived in Egypt, God had promised Abraham, his his servant Abraham, a lot of things. He had promised to give Abraham and his family a good land. 
and a great multitude of descendants. He was going to make them into a great nation, a great kingdom. And this great kingdom would dwell in the midst of a fruitful and an abundant place. God had promised to Abraham and his family uh, wonderful blessings forever in these ways, not to leave them in slavery and oppression. Well, God had rescued Israel to make good on those promises. And then Genesis shows that the people, they really can trust this God. He's not some mere tribal deity like the gods of Egypt or Canaan or, or Babylon or the nations. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is the only true God, the sole creator of all heaven and earth. And he's good and he's almighty and sovereign and he's altogether holy. And as the sovereign and almighty one, he's created and designed this world with a purpose from the beginning to bless and do good to his creatures. So Genesis tells this original audience, yes, you can trust this God. You can trust him. Yes, that's why he's rescued you. That was the message for this original audience. And that's its message for us today as well. That's his message for us today as well. This brings us now to Genesis 1, 1 and 2 in the God of glory. Our passage and the book as a whole begins by saying, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Of course, this chapter is going to give much attention to God's creative work. But almost like um, if you were to go to an art show and they might take time to, to introduce you to the artist in the beginning before you take a tour of the gallery, our passage begins with introducing us to God. And it begins in this way because God is the chapter's principal subject. Right? As one commentator notes, God dominates the whole chapter and catches the eye at every point of the page. And as we mentioned earlier, the, the Hebrew word for God here is repeated 35 times in the first section of Genesis. And that word translated as God here throughout the chapter is the word we see here as Elohim, which is an interesting word. Right? It's actually a plural noun, which is surprising because it's, it's telling us about the work of the one and only God as it's joined to the word translated here as created, which is a verb in the singular. Okay, so now because of the, the plural noun and singular verb here, some have often said that in Moses calling God Elohim here like this, he's hinting at something of God's Trinitarian nature. And, you know, that's possible but it's more likely, as per Calvin, that Elohim here is communicating something to us of God's supremacy and his majesty among all the false gods and idols of the nations. Because, this is important, there were several creation accounts that were popular and prominent during that time. Uh, and they're attributed, they're attributed uh, the creation and, and those creation accounts are attributed to other so-called Elohim. And all of that was kind of in the air, in the culture, in, 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 in and around everything going on there when Moses penned this chapter. And this chapter seems to be written then in order to contrast and oppose those accounts on several points. Most of all, when it comes to the nature and character of the creating God. And this, it, it shows something of the supremacy and majesty of God as well as something of his goodness and love. You know, other rival creation accounts from that time tell stories about a number of gods who seem really altogether just, just altogether too human-like, you know, just uh, a bit bigger and more powerful. And these gods often will have 
been said to have created the world by accident uh, when they were in the midst of war with one another or by their spit or by their semen. Or it's, uh, some of it is just very strange. Um, and one of the, the, the creation accounts, one of the popular accounts of that day, one that many think kind of most corresponds to the creation account of Genesis 1, was an account of a god named Marduk, or Marduk killing his mother, the goddess Tiamat right? And then using the material of her mutilated corpse to create the world as we know it, which is, you know, sounds like lyrics to a good metal song, but uh, it's not necessarily like a good, a a trustworthy sounding uh, account of the creation, right? And so, contra Marduk and Tiamat, Genesis 1 reveals to us a God who is really quite different than the puny gods of of the nations and imaginations of men. It reveals to us a God of glory, a God of supreme majesty, a God who is altogether holy and unlike any other. But to begin with, one of the truths revealed to us about God here is that he is an eternal God, that God is eternal, right? Unlike many of the gods of the nations and imaginations of men, this God is not the result of reproduction from gods and goddesses. He's not one who has evolved from pre-existing matter. He's not one who has come into existence at some point in time. He's not one who can be destroyed and dismembered. Rather, no, he, in the beginning, when all things were created, he was there. Because he was there before the beginning. And with that, he always has been and always will be. Uh, the, the, The opening words of Genesis here gave cause for Moses to later pin in praise to God in Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This God is eternal. He's timeless. He's an everlasting God. We see this in Genesis 1.1. But then this passage also shows us the truth that God is God. God is God. And you might say, well, that's obvious, don't you think? But to put it a little bit differently, it shows us something of what theologians sometimes call the creator-creature distinction. There are really ultimately, primarily, only two categories of being in existence. There's one, you can be the eternal, immutable, uncreated, self-existing, self-sufficient, transcendent, infinite God, Or two, you can be a dependent, contingent creature. And there are no other categories as primary or as significant as that for categories of existence or being. As Christopher Watkin puts it, he says, the fundamental distinction in our universe, as per Genesis 1.1, is not between God and the devil, who, as we will see in chapter 3, is a creature under God's authority and in no way his rival, or between one part of creation and another, but between God and everything else, the heavens and the earth, verse one, that includes the whole created order. You see, God, unlike the created gods of the nations, is a being distinct from his creation. This also means that creation is in no way divine or infused with divinity, which is an idea becoming increasingly popular among us today. You know, you often hear people say things like, I'm just going to put this out there into the universe. 
Or, you know, if you put good things out into the universe, good things will come back to you. Or there's t-shirts out there that say, the universe has your back, as if that's supposed to mean anything. You hear people talk like this all the time, and sometimes you hear professing Christians talk like this. But the underlying assumption in saying things like that is that the universe is in some way divine or infused with some sort of impersonal divinity, and that as such, it acts like some sort of cosmic vending machine. Genesis 1, doesn't it, it present to us, reveal to us something wholly different than that? It shows us that there is a personal, sovereign, creating God, and He is utterly holy and distinct from all of creation. Yes, he, he's, he's not a God that is far from us. He's not aloof to us, but he is whole, he's altogether holy and different from all created things. He alone is God. Next, it also shows us that God is almighty. God is almighty. And this is so obvious from the creation account. Several of our Christian creeds begin with a confession that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We say this because all created things that exist, exist by the creating work of God. And the things that exist, if you just take a moment, go outside today and look around you, the things that exist are amazing. They are glorious. They are unfathomably large and beautiful and big. I I don't know if you ever saw those those pictures taken by the James Webb Space Telescope not too long ago. I think this was last year. You can't look at pictures like that and not marvel at the sheer magnitude and vastness of the cosmos. When you look at those images and you see in them just thousands and thousands of galaxies, I just can't help but think just how infinitely mighty our God must be in order to create something so unfathomably big. And yet these are merely created things testifying to something or someone rather greater and more powerful than we could even imagine. As Pastor Adam quoted Psalm 19 earlier, they declare to us the glory of God, Right? They tell of his almighty power, of a power that knows no limits whatsoever. One more truth in Genesis 1 here is that God is abundant. God is abundant. We could say a lot more, but we'll end with this one, that God is abundant. God is filled with life and blessedness and glory. He's He's just filled with vitality, and he created for that reason. He's far different than Marduk. He's far different, who we keep picking on, I know. Poor little Marduk. But in the Babylonian account of creation, account of Marduk, Marduk, he created human beings because he needed and wanted slaves to tend to his needs and desires. But the creating God of Genesis 1 is far different, isn't he? He's not a God who, who has need. No, need is a creature word. This, this God is one who is entirely self-sufficient and happy and fulfilled within himself. As Michael Reeves puts it, he's not a single God, non-smoker, seeking attractive creation with a good sense of humor, right? No, God is filled with 
life and vitality and blessedness, and it is precisely due to the superabundance of his glory that he overflows into his creating work. Just as a sun can't help but emanate with life-giving rays or fountains can't help but pour forth streams of living water, so does the lavish goodness emanate from our creator, causing the universe to come into existence and teem with light and light and love. And this is all intimately tied to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. We mentioned earlier that the word Elohim is probably not best understood as communicating something of the the doctrine of the Trinity to us, but that doesn't mean that the doctrine of the Trinity is not all over Genesis 1, right? In verse 2, we see that the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters, which we'll look at in a moment. But suffice it to say now that the Spirit of God, He's not some sort of impersonal force or energy emanating from God, Right? In the fullness of New Testament revelation, we see that he is a divine person who knows and can be known by us. In Genesis 1-3, we, we see that God creates the world through his word. Right? Well, we come to find in John 1-1 that that word is actually a person. He's a divine person, one who was in the beginning there with God. And as per Colossians 1-16, that God created all things through him. You see, the, the, the one true God is also a God who is three persons. And these three persons are all present and active in the creation of all things. And they've dwelled together in glorious love and abundance and blessedness for all of eternity past. The Father loving the Son and the Spirit and the Son loving the Father and the Spirit and the Spirit loving the Father and the Son forever and ever. And so far from being lonely or in need, this God overflows with life and abundance and love into this very act we're reading about this morning. It's Puritan Richard Sibbs who I originally read, uh, picked up on this, and wrote on it so beautifully. He once said, God's goodness is a communicative goodness. It's a goodness that, that he loves to share. It's a spreading goodness. If God had not a communicative spreading goodness, he would never have created the world. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were happy in themselves and enjoyed one another before the world was so that God delights to communicate and spread his goodness. There would never have been a creation nor redemption. God uses his creatures not for defective power, that he can do, anything, that he can do nothing without them, but for the spreading of his goodness. You understand what we see here is an act of overflowing love and goodness and bountifulness because our God is abundant. This abundance led to the creation of the cosmos. This brings us to the second half of verse 1 now, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This bountiful God, this big and beautiful God overflowed with all goodness and fullness and life and power into this act of creation. And this word translated as created here, it's an important word. It's a word that's different than the word translated as made, used elsewhere throughout the chapter. And unlike the word translated as made, 
The word translated as created here is a word that always has God as its subject in the Bible. And the reason for that is because no one can create like God creates. As divine image bearers, you know, we're commissioned to and capable of making glorious things out of the stuff that God has made. That's part of what makes us glorious as image bearers. We are makers. There have been occasions when one of my children might ask when we see a, a building or a car or something, they'll say, did God make that car? Did God make that building? And I just, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a pastor and I think theologically, I go, it's just complicated, guys. Because in one sense, we might say, well, a person made that car or that building. But to attribute, you know, and to attribute such activity to human creatures shows something of the dignity and intelligence and brilliance of human beings. However, here's the thing. They only made it. They didn't create it. Not like we're talking about here. They made it, yes, but they made it from pre-existing materials that they did not make, but that God made. And in that sense, they did not create it like we're speaking of God creating here. In the beginning, God did not gather up pre-existing materials like people do when building cars or buildings or like Marduk did in the Babylonian creation account using the mutilated corpse of his goddess mother. No, God created, and, and, and the term theologians have used for this over the last 2,000 years is the term creatio ex nihilo, which is Latin for creation out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo, ex out of nihilo, nothing. God created the heavens and the earth, and he did so out of nothing. Right? In in eternity past, God dwelled as a triune spirit, as one being with one essence forever and ever. And in the beginning of time, the material world unfurled into glorious existence by an act of his divine love and power. Right? The author of Hebrews writes about this in Hebrews 11.3. He says that by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Right? In other words, in the beginning, there was nothing but God. And then God spoke to that nothing and he told it to become something and it obeyed him. Right? And think of that. Friends, just as an aside for a moment too, you know, this is one reason that we can have confidence in the word of God. This is one reason we can have confidence in the word of God. This is one thing that that keeps me going, getting up here to preach from this pulpit Sunday in and Sunday out, is that God's word is powerful and effective and productive. This is one reason that it's one thing that gets me up uh, in the morning to read my Bible is that God accomplished, his word is not empty. It's not ineffective. God's speech accomplishes the very purpose he desires it to accomplish. Isaiah 55, 11. right? God acts and works in this world from the beginning through his word. He does so by and through his word. He accomplishes what he desires to accomplish by and through his word. He does so today through his word written and preached, just as he did in the beginning when he created all things through his word. 
right? This is one reason we give ourselves to the word of God. It's because through it, God works and does what he desires to do among us. And that's exactly what this passage is telling us, that he did. He created all things in the beginning by his word. And we say all things because that's what this passage says here. It says he created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. Now, we've talked about this before, but for a little review, this is, this is what's called a mirrorism. A mirrorism. And a mirrorism is a literary device that the Bible likes to use a lot. It's a device that tries to capture the whole of something by mentioning its extremities. So for example, if someone searched everywhere for something that they lost, they might say, I searched high and low. I searched high and low for my keys, but I can't find them. That's a mirrorism. They searched high and low. That means they searched everywhere. Or if someone says, the neighbor's dog is driving me crazy. It barks day and night. What are they saying? They're saying this dog barks all the time. It's so annoying. That's a mirrorism. When Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Matthew 28, 18. That's a mirrorism. It speaks to the whole of something by mentioning its extremities. And just so, when Genesis 1, 1 says that God created the heavens and the earth, we're to look up in the sky and think of the highest extremity of the heavens and we're to look down to the lowest depths of the earth and we're to see here that God created these and everything in them and everything between them, everything that is he created. Created galaxies and gazelles and dogs and daisies. He created canyons and oceans and stars and angels. He created mountains and mosquitoes and moons. He created rivers and clownfish and grass and oak trees and on and on we could go so that everything that exists and has life and breath and being might exist and redound to the praise of his glory because he is their maker. He is their creator. God is the abundant author and artist of this bountiful and big and beautiful universe. And yet we need to not get ahead of ourselves here because he did create all things indeed. And he has filled the earth with those, those glorious things we just mentioned. And, and there's so much bounty and beauty and the abundance of this earth. And yet what we find in verse 2 is that the earth did not exist in such a state in the beginning, at least not right away. Initially, in its primordial state, the earth was empty and void and chaotic and messy, which brings us next and last to see in verse 2 the, the emptiness of the earth. Verse 2 tells us that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So as we just had our attention drawn up and beyond to the vastness and greatness of this entire cosmos as God created everything, the heavens and the earth. And now verse 2 brings our attention to a particular place, down to earth, as it were. And what it tells us about the state of the earth is not pretty. It gives us two negative statements about the state of the earth and then a positive statement meant to give us the thrill of hope. And the first negative statement is that the earth was without form and void. And those two Words translated as without form and void here are rhyming words. It's tohu and vohu. And what they communicate 
is that the earth is in a state of chaos, of disorder, of disarray. Everything is all topsy-turvy, as it were. It's not as it should be. And in fact, Jeremiah 4.23 will actually use these exact same two words together to speak about the barren wasteland of Judah after Judah was judged and destroyed for her sins. And there, like here, these words are communicating a state of disarray, of barrenness. There's a lack of life and abundance and vitality to it. This, this word communicates something of chaos. And then the next negative statement communicates much the same. It says, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And here we, we learn more about this state of disarray and barrenness. You see here that this, this place is a, 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 a place of watery waste. It's indicated by the word deep, the deep. It's called the deep. Of course, in Hebrew culture, bodies of water often represented and symbolized evil and chaos, and they certainly do here, as does the darkness. You see here, too, that this place of watery waste is cloaked in shadow and darkness. If you just want to take a moment and just imagine the initial state of the earth was like, according to Genesis 1-2, think of what it would be like to be out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in the dead of night, a, a, a thick blanket of clouds covering the sky, no land, no light, no luminaries in sight, just utter blackness and darkness and void and nothingness. And just imagine being there, how frightening and disturbing that would be. That's what these two statements are, are, are meant to draw out of us. And yet, there hovering over the face of those waters is a beacon of divine light and life amidst the abyss. This brings us to our positive statement here. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. An Old Testament scholar, Mark Futado, says that the word and could perhaps be better translated as but. Because this, this third statement is offering here a contrast to the first two statements. The earth, it says, in the, is in a state of barrenness and disarray, but, it tells us, the presence of the living and creating an abundant God is there with it and over it, showing us that this barren earth is actually something of a blank canvas getting ready to become his cosmic masterpiece. And in fact, when it says that he's present there, it says that he's, he's hovering over it. And the word there actually gives a, a, a picture of a mother bird brooding over her young. In fact, uh, Deuteronomy 32.11 uses the exact same word to describe just that, speaking of how the Lord so cared for and rescued the people of Israel from Egypt and guided them through the desert. Moses writes there that he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest. That And here's, here's the word, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. And just so, he did the same in the beginning over the, the vast wasteland that was the earth. Martin Luther, seeing this, once wrote of Genesis 1-2 here, he said, Over these the Holy Spirit broods as a hen broods her eggs, keeping them warm in order to hatch her chicks, and as it were, 
to bring them to life through heat. So scripture says that the Holy Spirit brooded, as it were, on the waters to bring to life those substances which were to be quickened and adorned, for it is the office of the Holy Spirit to make alive. It is the office of the Holy Spirit to make alive. Indeed, in the Nicene Creed, we confess as Christians, the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. And we confess him as such because we have seen him from the beginning as the one through whom God gives life to all things. In the beginning, he he hovered over the barren wasteland of this earth, which laid in a state of utter disarray. And as the rest of Genesis 1 shows us, he transformed it into a fruitful and abundant garden. And do you see, do you see how encouraging, how this would have given hope to this, this original audience? Right? As a people enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. They themselves lived in this state of chaos, of disarray, of barrenness in their own life as a nation and as a people. And what they needed, the one they needed was an almighty, abundant creator and redeemer who would take the barren wasteland of their lives and turn them into a fruitful garden. And this is what he did for them. We see in Deuteronomy, he he hovered over them as the God of all abundance, and he rescued them from the barren wasteland of slavery. And friends, can he not do the same for us today? I know that there are, are some of us here that feel our souls to be shrouded in darkness, who carry with us a sense of emptiness in our hearts due to some pain or suffering or afflicting us. Perhaps due to some loss, some pain, some sickness, your life feels dark and chaotic like a wasteland we see in Genesis 1-2 here. But this verse, it, it beckons us, it invites us to take heart because we serve a God who is present over such chaotic moments, just as he was present over this formless void. And what's more, he's a God who has promised to work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we know that he can because he showed us here in this passage this morning that he is a God who brings fullness out of emptiness. He's a God who brings light out of darkness. He's a God who brings beauty out of ashes. He's a God who brings life out of death. Christian, has he not done this for you already? The Holy Spirit, he is the Lord and giver of life for you personally, intimately, savingly, lovingly, prior to life in Christ. What was your life if not a state of mess and chaos and barrenness? Were you not a a barren wasteland of sin and hopelessness? And yet John 6, 63, it is the Spirit, Jesus says, who gives life. Christian, has he not hovered over your life and heart and brought you out of death and darkness and into life and light by his almighty power, the same power displayed here in the beginning? Non-Christian here today, he can do the same for you. 
might be feeling that your life is, is cloaked in shadow and darkness, that your heart is empty. You might feel to exist in a state of disarray and barrenness, but take heart from Genesis 1-2. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life. He can and does take barren lives and make them bountiful and beautiful again. And we can trust and rest assured and know for certain that this is true. Because not only did he do it in the beginning, and not only did he do it for Israel, and not only has he done it for every believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, but much more, he did it 2,000 years ago in, an empty, in, a, in a tomb outside of Jerusalem. There the barren, lifeless corpse of Jesus lay. And the Word and Son of God, after the Word and Son of God came to this earth clothed in our creatureliness and humanity, having lived the life that we ought to have lived, having died the death we deserve to die in our place, having taken upon himself the destruction and judgment of God we deserve for wrecking and devastating his good world that he has created. He lay there in that tomb in a state of darkness, void of all life and light. And yet even there, Romans 8, 11 tells us, the Holy Spirit hovered over the lifeless corpse of Jesus and brought him into resurrection life. And because of the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, we too are now invited to experience and receive the life and resurrection power of the Holy Spirit this morning, bringing us out of sin and darkness and hopelessness into a life of fruitfulness and joy and abundance with our abundant and bountiful triune God. Beloved, this is your God. Fall down at his feet and worship him. Bless his holy name. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table, would you seal this word upon our hearts? Would you remind us that Jesus has come to grant us life and life abundantly and that he has sent the Spirit to apply it to us. And so we ask that your spirit would now hover over this gathering and grant us communion with the, the living and risen Christ. That our lives might not be barren wastelands, but fruitful and abundant gardens that redound to the glory of your name. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.